Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you and enjoy the following message. Bill says we're back at the top of the batting order, but I would point out that the best batter doesn't always go first. (laughs) If you have young kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews, you have probably at some point been exposed to Charlie and Lola books. Charlie and Lola books uh, started in the early 2000s, and there are some real classics out there that have won some awards, like I will never, not ever, eat a tomato, or I am too absolutely small for school. One of the cutest ones is called, I will be especially very careful. And in the book, Lola's best friend, Lota, gets a new fluffy white coat. And Lola asks to borrow it, promising to be especially very careful with the new fluffy white coat. So keeping this coat new, fluffy, and white is Lola's top priority. But as you can imagine, in the course of the story, all kinds of things end up happening to the coat. And Lola keeps asking her brother Charlie and annoying him by asking him, like, after every debacle, if the coat is new, fluffy, and white still. So despite her best intentions, Lola was not especially very careful with the new, fluffy, white coat. And I think a lot of us can relate to that with respect to our Christian lives. It's not just when we've borrowed clothes or toys or tools or whatever else, but in our Christian lives, we aren't always especially very careful to love the Lord our God. We're coming to the end of our study of the book of Joshua. And as Pastor Bill mentioned, Joshua here in chapter 23 is old. He is near the end of his earthly life. And so he calls the leaders together to remind them about God's covenant, about all that he has commanded them. And he has issued them in this chapter a very specific challenge that I think is relevant for us today. Joshua begins his charge in verse 3. If you take a look there, he says, You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. They saw all of God's mighty works with their own eyes. And then in verse 9, Joshua explains to them how they have seen how God has driven out all these strong and great nations and that no one has been able to stand before them. Then look at verse 10. One man of you puts to flight a thousand Since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Now, Joshua doesn't even mention all that God did in delivering them out of Egypt by his powerful and strong hand. He doesn't mention the army of Egypt getting drowned in the Red Sea or how God parted it for Israel. He doesn't mention the crossing of the Jordan, the miraculous crossing of the Jordan, or the defeat of Sihon and Og 
during those wilderness wandering years. He doesn't mention even any of those things, and yet he still says, you saw all of God's mighty works. He's just summarizing what this generation, this one generation of Israel has seen. Then go down to verse 14. Joshua says this, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. So as he promised, God kept his word to the people of Israel. But remember, in a covenant, there are two parties, not just one party. So the rest of this chapter is Joshua reminding the people of the blessings for obedience and the curses that will come as a result of disobedience that Moses explained to them before they ever entered into the promised land. So back in verses 4 and 5, Joshua notes that God gave them the land that he promised, that he would drive out any of the people who still remained so that Israel could live under his blessing forever. But take a look at verse 6. Look at what he says. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. So Israel would receive God's blessing by being strong and driving out the remaining peoples who did not worship and refused to submit to the one true God of the universe. And they would receive God's blessing by keeping God's law, not turning from it to the right or to the left, worshiping and serving him alone. They would receive God's blessing by doing those things. But if they compromised, if they took on marriages with these people who did not worship God, if they began to take on their sinful practices and bow down to those idols, then look at verse 13, what the warning is. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And just in case that isn't abundantly clear, look at how he wraps up this section, verse 15. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. So if Israel disobeys God, they can know for certain that these things are going to happen. They're not going to receive God's blessing. Instead, they will be led astray by these other people to worship false idols. Instead, they will be conquered and defeated and exiled and removed out of the land that God has graciously given to them, they will receive a curse and not a blessing. So all of that seems pretty straightforward. And if you just do a cursory reading of Joshua chapter 23, if you just read through it, the whole thing seems to turn on the verse that we highlighted a moment ago, verse 6. 
The whole thing seems to turn on this verse, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. But if you are familiar with the Bible and Israel's history, you know that they were not very strong and they did not drive out the remaining peoples of the land. They did become a snare to them. They did start worshiping their idols. They did adopt their sinful practices. They did intermarry with them. And ultimately, as a result of hundreds of years of sin and disobedience, God brought discipline on the nation. They were conquered first by Assyria and then by Babylon, and they were exiled. That's what happened to them. So we could read this passage and assume that the whole thing turns on verse 6 and that the application for us today as Christian believers is simply to try harder to do better at keeping God's law so that we experience his blessing. But I don't think the passage turns on verse 6 because I don't think verse 6 captures the essence of God's covenant. I think the whole passage turns on verse 11. Now, before we get there, as we've just seen, this passage is all about the blessings for obedience and the curses that are going to come as a result of disobedience to God's law. So when we come to verse 11, what would we expect Joshua to say? Be very careful, therefore, to what? Be very careful, therefore, to obey the Lord your God. Or be very careful, therefore, to fear the Lord your God. That's what we would expect coming to this verse. That's what would make sense. In a chapter filled with all of the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience, we would come to verse 11. It would make perfect sense if Joshua stepped before these leaders and said, be very careful to obey. Be very careful to fear the Lord. That would make sense. But what does Joshua actually say? Look at verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Why does he say that? On Tuesday mornings, our staff is going through this best-selling book by James K.A. Smith called You Are What You Love. So that's become kind of the running joke in the office. Whenever we run into each other, we're like, well, you are what you love. This is a great book. I highly commend it to you. The, the main point of You Are What You Love is you worship what you love, and you may not love what you think. You worship what you love, and you may not love what you think. So I want to invite you guys to chew on this quote from the first chapter of the book. Take a look at this. What if, instead of starting from the assumption that human beings are thinking things, we started from the conviction that human beings are first and foremost lovers? What if you are defined not by what you know, but by what you desire? What if the center and seat of the human person is found not in the heady regions of the intellect, 
but in the gut level regions of the heart. In the Western church, nearly every one of us begins with the assumption that we are primarily thinkers. So Christian discipleship is geared almost entirely toward growing in knowledge. But as Smith points out in the book, our problem as Christians is not merely that we think the wrong things, it's that we love the wrong things. So consider smoking cigarettes for a moment here. I don't mean like consider doing it this afternoon. I just mean like <laughs> think, about, think about that prospect of someone smoking cigarettes. After all of the teaching in public schools, after those horrifying ad campaigns of the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, after the Surgeon General taking out billboards everywhere, is there literally one person on the face of the planet that does not know that smoking is bad for you? And yet, you still find plenty of people smoking. Why? Because it's not a knowledge problem, it's a desire problem. For whatever reason, their desire to smoke cigarettes outweighs their knowledge that smoking is bad for their health and will probably end up killing them. When you consider the religious leaders of Jesus' day, people like the scribes and the Pharisees, they did not have a knowledge problem. They knew God's law forwards and backwards. Most of them, many of them, had it memorized. It wasn't a knowledge problem. So in Mark chapter 12, a scribe walks up to Jesus and he asks him, which commandment is the most important? And if you're there in the crowd, as soon as this question is asked, which commandment is the most important, your mind starts running. And your mind starts running because you know that the nation of Israel, your people, was exiled for two primary reasons, idolatry and breaking the Sabbath. You go back and you read all of the prophets that were prophesying to the nation right before they were exiled, northern kingdom and southern, and the two main issues were idolatry and breaking the Sabbath. So if you're there in the crowd that day and somebody walks up to this great teacher and says, which command is the most important? You're thinking, well, I wonder what he's going to say. Is he going to say the first command? You shall have no other gods before me? Maybe it's the second commandment. You, you shall not make for yourself an idol of any kind. Maybe it's the fourth commandment, to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. You're thinking it's got to be one of those three. Which is he going to choose and why? But no, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts and how Jesus answers this question, you know what he says. Take a look on the screen. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, why does Jesus answer the question in this way? It's because what we love drives what we think and what we say and what we do. If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by extension, 
love our neighbors as we love ourselves, then we will automatically keep the rest of God's law. Because that's the standard of love for God and for neighbor. That's why Jesus concludes his answer in this way. Take a look at verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Everything else written in there is dependent on this one command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God and if you love your neighbor, you will keep his law because the rest of his law is dependent on those two commands. And if Israel kept God's law, they would receive his blessing and they would remain in the promised land. So let's go back now to verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. What does that mean in practice? Well, let's begin with the first phrase, be very careful. Why do we need to be very careful? Well, it's because we are not first and foremost thinkers. We are first and foremost lovers. That's why the great hymn says, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We're primarily lovers, not thinkers, and our hearts are prone to wander from the God that we love because our hearts are always in search of someone or something to love. That's the truth. And that's why we have warnings all throughout the scripture, like what we find in 1 John chapter 2. Take a look at this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world. That's what God says to us. Be very careful with your love. That's what God says to us. If we are not very careful with our love, then we are on track to have the same thing happen to us that happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden. I referenced this pa passage a few weeks ago when we were talking about what happened in Joshua chapters 7 and 8 with Achan and him stealing the devoted things. I want you to look at this again. Look at Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. This is the description of what happens to Eve. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, I want you to notice those words those action words in the passage. 
Eve saw the fruit. Then she began to delight in it. Then she began to desire it. Then she took it, and then she shared it. I want you to think about how that happens to us. There's a new product of some kind, a pair of shoes or a new phone or a new TV series. And what happens? We see it advertised, so we see it. And as we look at that thing, that product, that service, that show, whatever it might be, we begin to desire it. And once we, uh, or rather we begin to delight in it. And once we delight in it enough, we begin to desire it. Once we desire it enough, we take it. We buy it, we go have the experience, whatever it would be, and then what do we do? We go and we share it. We tell our friends, our family, people that we know about this thing that we first saw and then began to delight in and then began to desire and then eventually took to get to the point where we are now sharing that with other people. Friends, it all starts with our eyes. It all starts with where we fix our attention. We see and then we delight, desire, take, and share. That's why Jesus says this in Matthew 6. And maybe this passage has confused you before when you've read it in the Sermon on the Mount. Think of it in in, in the context that we're talking about here. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It all starts with where we fix our eyes, with what we see and pay attention to. That's where it begins. We are called to be very careful to love the Lord our God. And that means we have to start with our eyes because whatever we fix our attention on, is going to shape what we delight in and what we desire, what we take, and what we share. And if we aren't careful with our love, our hearts are prone to wander, and we will quickly find ourselves in love with the world instead of in love with God. So we've considered why we have to be very careful to love the Lord our God, but there's an important question that remains, how? How do we love the Lord our God? Because you see, the answer to that question isn't simply negative. The answer is not, we love God by not loving anyone or anything else. That can't be all because not loving anyone or anything else does not mean that you positively love God. Think of a a wife went to her husband and she said, honey, do you love me? And he replied, what do you mean? I don't love any other women. (laughs) I hardly think that answer would be satisfactory. So loving the Lord is more than not loving other things, other gods, other people. 
We cannot love God and idols, but we do not love God simply by not loving idols. The scripture tells us we love because God first loved us. So that's where it starts along with everything else in the Christian life. It starts with God. It does not start with us. We love because God first loved us. And so how do we love God? This passage helps us to understand we love God by fixing our eyes on him, by meditating on his character and his works that he has done on our behalf, and by remembering his promises to us. Look again at verse 3, back at the start of this chapter. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. You have seen it. Fix your eyes on him, his character, what he has done. Go down again to verse 14 at the end of the chapter. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. So if we fast forward to the New Testament, you have in Hebrews chapter 11 this long catalog of all of these believers throughout hundreds and hundreds of years who have been following the Lord faithfully, who have exercised faith throughout difficult circumstances, and then you come to chapter 12, which is the follow-up, and look at what it says. This is in the NIV, because I love the way that it's phrased in this particular translation. Take a look. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We love God by first and foremost fixing our eyes on him, then meditating on who he is and what he has done, and then by remembering his promises to us. In other words, we follow the exact same pattern that Eve followed in the Garden of Eden, except instead of focusing on the things of this world, we instead put our eyes upon Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. As we do that, we will begin to delight in him. As we delight in him, we will begin to desire him more and more. As we begin to desire him more and more, we will take hold of him. And as we take hold of him for ourselves, we will want to share him with others. That's how Israel would experience God's blessing in the promised land. And that's how we will experience the blessing and rest of Christ as well. Friends, we must be very careful to love the Lord our God. And I have no doubt that there are some of you here today 
who know about the Lord, who perhaps know a great deal about the Lord. And before you even came here this morning, you may have already known what the great commandment is. You may, may have been able to recite that the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You may have known that. But I want to remind you today that the command is not to know that. The command is to do it. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so maybe this morning you are coming to the realization that even though you have known truth about God for a long time, you have not loved God. If that's true for you, then we want to invite you today to look upon Jesus. He himself said that if he was lifted up, that he would draw all people to himself. Well, he was lifted up on a cross. And he is being lifted up this morning through the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus came to live the perfectly obedient life that you are called to live. He is the only one ever who lived out the command of verse 6 to keep and to do all that was written in the law of Moses. He himself said, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, to do everything written there. And then he offered himself in your place for your sins on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for you so that you might know eternal life. He died and was buried, and the third day he rose from the grave victorious over sin and death. And to all who receive him through repentance and faith, he offers forgiveness and eternal life. So we invite you this morning to look upon Christ because we believe that when you look upon him, when you fix your attention on him, you will begin to delight in him. And as you begin to delight in him, you will desire him. And once you desire him, you will take hold of him through repentance and faith. And then once you've done that, you will share him by becoming baptized and then telling everyone around you the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And so we urge you this morning to take hold of him by faith. And if you're already here and you're, you're following Christ today, I want you to ask yourself a question. Have I been very careful to love the Lord my God? Have I been very careful to love the Lord my God? I want you to underline, highlight, write in bold, very careful. If you find yourself bored with spiritual things, distracted in worship, if you find it difficult to pray, to open the word of God, to read, to share your faith, if living in community with other Christians has become a chore for you rather than a joy, perhaps you have not been very careful to love the Lord your God. And so I want to encourage you to take an audit of your life this week. How are you spending your time? What are you fixing your eyes on throughout the day and in the evening, in your downtime at work? 
Where are you spending your money? What has captured your attention, your thoughts, your dreams? If we're honest, not one of us has been as careful as we should have been to love the Lord our God. We have all been tempted and fallen into the temptation to love someone or something else more than we love him. So let's resolve this morning to fix our eyes upon Jesus, believing that as we do that, we will delight in him. And as we delight in him, we will desire him. And as we desire him, we will take hold of him. And as we take hold of him, we will share him. Let's resolve to be very careful to love the Lord our God. Let's pray. Father, you have commanded us to be very careful to love you. And we confess this morning that we have been careless. It is so easy, especially in a wealthy, prosperous, comfortable place like the United States. for us to become more and more careless with our love and our affections. It is so hard when every advertisement is telling us to love someone or something besides you. It is so hard when most of our neighbors are in love with things besides you. It's hard for our kids who go to school with other kids who love other things instead of you. But Father, we also recognize that it has never been easy to love you in any generation, in any nation, in any time in human history because our hearts are prone to wander. They will always go looking for someone or something to love. And so God, we pray earnestly that you would keep our affections for you. That you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. That we would meditate on your character and all you've done, your promises to us that have never, ever failed. God, wake us up and help us to do the things that we did at first. We pray that our love for you would grow and that as our love for you grows, our passion for talking about you with each other and with people who don't know you would also grow. Thank you, God, for Joshua's charge to Israel's leaders, for his example of calling them to do hard things. And we pray that we would be those who do hard things in assessing our lives and walking in repentance where it's necessary. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.